This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at Upcase.com. Giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. With me today is Zach Dunn, the CPO and co-founder of Robin. Hey, Zach. Hey, Chad. How's it going? Pretty good. Thanks for taking the walk about... 250 yards down the street and joining me today. You took two whole minutes out of my life today. (laughs) So tell me, what is Robin? Sure. So Robin plays in the smart office space. Specifically, teams can use it to help find free space and free people at a moment's notice. I should say, in full disclosure, I'm super excited about Robin. Uh, And we are having investment time tomorrow and Friday. Uh, we do that at the end of the year where we take two days and we just work on cool things that we want to do. And I'm going to be setting up Robin in our office. And I got six Estimotes, which mm-hmm. are beacons. Mm-hmm. And they arrived last week. And they've been sitting on my desk patiently waiting for me to deploy them throughout the office. And I understand that once I do that, I, Robin will know where I am in the office, but specifically like what spaces I'm in, in the office. Mm -hmm. So, and one of the big use cases that Robin handles is if I walk into a meeting room and it's not booked, it will automatically add a calendar event Mm -hmm. on the calendar. Yeah. So that, that sort of touches on the main thing. Like Robin from the, the technical side just answers the question, who is in the room and what is in the room? Right. And turns out with that information, you can do a lot calendars is a great starting point and that's what most people are interested in today but as you guys are hacking around i'm sure you'll find out more right so one of the things that someone here actually already built is a theme music system and it uses beacons but the beacon is running on a computer and when someone comes in to the office it looks on dropbox gets their theme music and plays it on some speakers Mm -hmm. so that's the kind of thing where we could remove our part of our custom infrastructure Mm -hmm. And Robin would handle that for us. It's sort of like an API for location. Yeah. So we sort of think about it, yeah, like an API for physical space. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of stuff to that and the whole Internet of Things space. A lot of people are like, oh, yeah, let's make all the devices talk to one another. But we're looking at it more from the angle of, look, if you think buildings of the future will have their own API, right? Well, what makes that interesting is not the fact that it has its own API, but that it has users. And if you can log into your office by entering it, well, then that's a hell of a lot more interesting than just visiting a website, for example, and not being able to log in. So mm-hmm. everything is from scratch. Mm-hmm. How did you guys get started on this idea? So uh, this came out of a company that I had founded with my twin brother all the way back in college uh, five years ago called One Mighty Roar. It was more of your traditional kind of digital agency software shop. You want an app, we build an app, and that's basically the transaction. Now, by some miracle, when we did that, a lot of our earlier clients where the follow-up question was not, oh, and what do they do, so name brands, were in the uh, nightlife sector, uh, Mm -hmm. specifically alcohol, which was a funny one when they sent us free products to college. I remember visiting your office. So your office is right down the street from ours in Boston. And I don't remember what alcohol there was, but there was a bunch. I remember that. 
Yep. Yep. Uh, research yeah. mostly. Yes. Um, so it turns out a lot of these these liquor brands at the time were just trying to figure out how social worked, right? Like Facebook and Twitter were just no, you had to be on, and they didn't quite know what that meant. So we built a lot of kind of social media related things there. And the interesting problem that a lot of nightlife brands have is that they do a lot of real world events. And at the time, like three, four years ago, when they did that, they would basically say, oh, social at like a cocktail mixer. Let's put a hashtag on a wall. Right. And then the marketing team would go back. and They'd be like, oh, man, we're so brilliant. That's awesome. And then they'd basically have a screen that just put up Twitter hashtags. And it turns out that sucks. And not many people actually do that from the uh, the attendee side. So we went in and we built a system that basically used RFID wristbands to pair it to uh, like Facebook accounts, Twitter, you name it, so that when people showed up to these events, uh, they could basically tag in at key spots and like have stuff happen at the events, which was a lot more engaging than just looking down at your phone. So that was the first time that we made something where you could like log into physical space, for lack of better words. And that was a big hit. And we did that for a couple of years. And then uh, we realized that the stuff that we were prototyping in our office was actually more useful on a day-to-day basis and more interesting than the type of thing where it's like, what can we do with two hours and 100 people that we've never met before? Mm-hmm. So we started working on converting that into a office-related platform. And in 2014, we stopped all client work. And Robin was born. We spun it out, took the entire team over with us. And uh, here we are today. That's really interesting, and I want to focus on that for a bit. How big was the team at One Mighty Roar? So at our peak, we were 19 people. Mm -hmm. Uh, At the time that we changed over, I think we were 15, 16, Mm -hmm. and we're at 17 today. And obviously must have been a big leap to decide to do that, that you had been working on One Mighty Roar for five years. Did you do it when you had enough revenue from Robin to support switching the team over? So short answer, yes, kind of. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Horribly descriptive, I know. So One Mighty Roar had a pretty big war chest from all of the kind of consulting days. And uh, while Robin was generating, I would say the majority of, or what would later become known as Robin, was generating the majority of the revenue on the One Mighty Roar side, we did sort of become Robin's first investors, uh, mm-hmm. so to speak, for probably about nine months where we were just funding it out of pocket to get it to the point where it was able to actually be sold in the office setting mm-hmm. as opposed to events. And so are you continuing to be the only investor now? Nope. So we are joined by a number of very exciting folks. Uh, we closed our first part of our seed round back in July. Um, Congratulations. Oh, thank you. And uh, we bundled up the second half of that with some more corporate investor types back in October. So we are done with our seed round, and we are full steam ahead on getting this thing out to as many people as possible. Yeah, so what is the goal for the investment? Sure. So the whole kind of Internet of Things space, right? A lot Mm. of people look at that as oh, well, now my toaster can tweet at me or my refrigerator now can order stuff online for me, which is, you know, the future I think we all want, right? But not really what we're getting right now. And so Robin, at least at this stage, represents like what 
could we do with smart spaces outside of the home, more specifically in the office, which is if you're not at the home, you're probably at work, Mm -hmm. right? And you can do a lot more interesting things with the crowds and the groups of people there. And uh, this seed round for us is a way of proving that, saying, Mm -hmm. hey, what does this sort of technology do for uh, the workplace and the productivity and the communication there? Mm -hmm. Was there any dilemma internally about taking investment oh you guys had um, bootstrapped it so far you might have to give up a lot in order to take outside investment yeah so when you take investment the priorities shift a little bit Mm -hmm. Uh, you're starting to think about things in terms of uh, what looks good on paper versus maybe what the best long-term thing And uh, we're fortunate that all the investors that we were able to sign on for this round definitely agree and see the vision. But starting to think about things in terms of product cycles instead of client cycles was Mm -hmm. a very hard transition for us. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm interested. Do you guys – how many of the folks that you talk to do, like, investment stuff are VC-backed companies? A lot. Okay. Yeah. So – One of the interesting side effects that we saw in um, when we were out fundraising was um, a lot of people. So one one mighty roar, we had grown to be a multi million a year business. Mm -hmm. Um, We could have done that and grown that for a while, and we thought that that was going to be a good thing when we went out and found investors. Right? Turns out, no. (laughs) Right. Um, A lot of them. That was like a weird one, but there's a mindset kind of with a certain segment of investors out there. that I'm sure is well-informed, but the gist is you're either a product person or a service person, and once you've picked one, you can't go to the other. Right. And uh, there were a lot of people who we had a lot of sort of questions to answer about that. So, you know, it was it was very interesting to see, like, how, oh, success in one industry doesn't necessarily translate. Right, and th- that's why I was curious about that transition, because not only are you guys transitioning – a successful business and, and is with a lot of revenue and giving that up basically to work on something else. But you know, that perspective of the investors and I see it manifest itself, not only in transitioning from service or consulting to product, but even just the fact that you guys already had revenue on your product had existing pricing plans, those kinds of things can be a big barrier to some investors mm-hmm. because they would much rather see nothing and then they can imagine the world as opposed to something very concrete like, well, this is what you're able to, this is what you're charging now. I can envision having 2 million customers and that's what this revenue means. That's not a big enough return for me. Yeah, so the um, the interesting thing was, you know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in that Boston and New York are, are coming up in sort of startup scenes yeah. in a big way. But you still see a lot of when we were doing our rounds, there was definitely a significant percentage of the the types of firms that we would talk to on the East Coast. Their questions were more oriented around what's gone wrong so far. Mm-hmm. And uh, on the West Coast, you definitely get more of a vibe of what happens if things go right. And not to say that the the reverse isn't also true for some of them, but like it was a very interesting vibe going back and forth from East Coast, West Coast on that. I don't think we said yet, but can you say who your investors actually are? Sure. So the lead on this one was Atlas Ventures mm-hmm. here in Boston. Uh, we also have participation from Bold Start, Deep Fork, and then uh, recently we are 
think literally as of this week, uh, happy to announce that we're also joined by Autodesk and Konica Minolta, as well as a, as a handful of uh, awesome angels inside of the Boston community. Cool. Th- those last two are interesting. So th- are, do they have special investment arms or is that the actual companies just themselves deciding to become investors? The companies themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them have innovation divisions or whatever you would call Mm -hmm. it whose job is to kind of do this bd autodesk if you think about like the future of buildings like what does an intelligent building like look like and we offer kind of like a feedback loop for that Mm -hmm. like right now you make a building and then you read white papers and then the next time you make a building you make it maybe different but like what if there was a continuous feedback loop uh and buildings were devices instead of concrete uh, and for Konica, it's it's more along those when you put things in an office, how do they actually interact with the people? And what would they do differently if they knew specifically who was using them and not just someone was using them? Right. It's an, it's an interesting world, though, corporate investment. Yeah. Now, are any of the people that you're working with as investors also customers? Yep. Uh, so That's cool. to varying degrees, we're rolling out in a lot of their locations, too. Mm-hmm. So Neat. Feedback. <laughs> Has your day-to-day changed a lot from transitioning from One Mighty Roar to Robin? Yeah, yeah. So I served the same role and title in both places, and that's Chief Product Officer. And in the One Mighty Roar days, that was basically uh, more client-facing. I would sit down in all the meetings, and they you know, figure out, okay, what exactly are we building here? Why are we building it? And how do we get there the fastest without mm-hmm. breaking things? Or too many things. You know, when you're building for clients, there's a, generally a, an end date, and then you reset and you start all over again. And changing from that mindset to something where it's just continuous and you have no end date in mind, it, it's a lot different about how you plan your days. I'm mm-hmm. more in sprint planning now. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested, like, so how does kind of ThoughtBot think about, right? Because you guys work on a lot of mostly client. Yeah. How do we stuff. think about products? Yeah. Because, I mean, I look, I'll preface this. That, like, there's a lot of really awesome software companies out there where they've made their mark by saying, hey, if you need someone to build an MVP, we're going to make you a badass MVP. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a series of product development cycles. Yeah. Right. And it's less of the how do you make a Facebook tab? So, yeah. So we went through a period of time where this was about when we were 16 to 19 people Mm -hmm. around the same time you guys made the big switch. We went through a period of time where we were spending up to 60% of our time working on new product ideas for ourselves. And what happened was the rest of the business suffered. And we realized that none of the ideas really played to our strengths. They weren't any big ideas. They were consumer facing things. They weren't Either that or they were for developers and designers, and they weren't going to be huge. And so the business started to suffer. At the same time, we had a successful product. It was Hoptoad, which became Airbrake. And we built that. We had a team of people working on it full time. It was self-sufficient. But we spent all of our time scaling that service. We never got to make the changes we wanted to it, that kind of thing. And So we had the opportunity, someone contacted us uh, about potentially acquiring Airbrake. And we said, hmm, we didn't really consider this, but let's look at it. Like, it would be stupid if we didn't have at least look at it. 
And the act of looking at it causes us to look at our numbers, causes us to really sort of do some soul searching around what we enjoyed doing and, and how we enjoyed working on it. And we went the opposite way. We said, you know, it, it's been a year now where every week we sort of sit down and we say, okay, what are we going to work on? Last week we spent all week scaling and dealing with this because Hoptoad Airbrake was basically under a constant DOS attack. Mm-hmm. And so... By, by customers? By customers, by, okay, yeah. Because yeah, yeah. the nature of the service is that it receives errors from other web services. When they have an error, they send all the details to Airbrake. And so just the, the level of customers that we had subscribing and the nature of error handling was such that we would just constantly get hammered. So every week we'd sit down and we'd say, okay, last week was pretty rough. We spent all our week scaling or dealing with this problem or moving Mongo or we just ran out of our 500 gigabyte storage array is almost out of space. We need to transition it. And so we'd say, okay, but we're done with that now. Here's the new features we're going to work on or here's the improvements we're going to work on this week. Okay, great. We're so excited. And then we'd spend the rest of the week dealing and putting out fires and dealing with scaling. And so we realized that in order to continue doing airbreak and really get to the next level, we were going to need to put a much larger team on it and make a much bigger investment in it ourselves. And we started to question whether that really made the most sense. So the confluence of those two things where we were spending a lot of time doing product development and sell certainty, and then ultimately deciding to sell airbreak there was a, a moment, a meeting where it was, you know, me and the rest of the leadership team of ThoughtBot, and I distinctly remember me or someone else saying, like, we have a success, a very successful business. Like, why are we actually trying to create another one? And we really love doing new product development with people. That's what we're optimized for. It's what we're really good at. And so we decided to focus on that. How did the team take that? The team was fine with that. I mean, because we were still doing a lot of really enjoyable work. And we weren't saying that we weren't going to build products. We, what we were saying was we're going to do things sustainably and in a way that makes sense. And so we still spend a significant portion of our time developing new products for ourselves and launching them and growing them and, and building them. But I think that the idea that one of those is going to replace ThoughtBot or the idea that ThoughtBot is not going to be successful because of that. Like, and that was really the decision-making demo. Like we, de- we actively decided to say, no, we have a successful business. Why are we trying to not work on that one? Let's work on that one and start to really make that the kind of company we want it to be. So that, that was the thing. And since then, we've launched, I think, four new products. We have a a team that works on Upcase, which is our online training community for Mm -hmm. developers. There's a team of three people who work on that full-time. And it's as big as Hoptoad ever was. It's as big revenue-wise as Airbrake ever was. But at the same time, we've also quadrupled the size of ThoughtBot. And so it was really the realization that we had a business that we would continue to grow and could grow, that we shouldn't try to sort of abandon it for the for another product. So actually, Robin wasn't the first kind of product that we worked on internally mm-hmm. that was uh, successful, uh, but it was the first one that was worth taking people off of. Uh, so similar to kind of what you were talking about where, so we built back in college, 
the first project we ever worked on with our CTO, Brian, was we basically made a website that was just would you rather questions. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the time it was called yourather.com. Uh, now it's called either. And uh, it got crazy big. Since 2009, it tracks now over a half a billion responses to just would you rather questions. We get hundreds of questions submitted a day. And we have apps and stuff where people can basically you know, go on and say, oh, would you rather like uh, be the first to die in a horror movie or the last one, right? People submit these and a lot of them I've scarred internally in reading them. <laughs> but that started to get out of hand where there was one week I remember where we were on Reddit three times a day, every day, on like really big subreddits of people like taking screenshots or linking to the site and being like, oh, have you ever? Mm-hmm. And this continued like, you know, the next week we were two or three times. And then it just became an exercise. And this thing was breaking away and like being awesome. But it was just such a toll on people. Like mm-hmm. it got to the point where I would leave work and I would sit on my laptop at home watching TV and basically approving or deleting questions that people had submitted. Because if we didn't, people would email us and be like, I've submitted my question two days ago. Why isn't it up yet? And uh, it just became such a toll on us Mm -hmm. that we kind of had to stop supporting it at the level that we wanted to. But it still, like, gets millions of hits a day. And it's like, what do we want to do with this thing? Yeah, yeah. So... And now we're to the point where ThoughtBot is big enough that we view the things that we're doing as active seed investment. And, you know, we're essentially funding them pretty significantly as the sole investor in them. Mm -hmm. And should one of those things become super successful and needed to be spun out, you know, or take to take an outside investment, we could do that. And ThoughtBot would be an investor in it and it would spin out. But it wouldn't mean that thought would go away well does that so one of the things that we grappled with when we were sort of straddling that line mm-hmm. was um you have your core business your baby thought in this case and you know that the people that you hire are best for ThoughtBot, right? right so there's a risk of putting your best people on thought related things and never really putting them because if you find an awesome rails developer are you going to put them on the, the new project that's untested or are you going to put them on the stuff that you know to be like working right and i don't necessarily know if you have an answer for that but there's that temptation i think i I think yeah that's true um one of the ways we get around that is not that everyone at thoughtbot is interchangeable but we don't focus so much on that because everyone is so good that rather than have different levels of people or, or worry about who's on what projects we can you know and the other thing is that um most of the ideas that we work on weren't generated by someone in a leadership position it, we have we only work on client work four days a week the fifth day is investment time so we work on open source and improving ourselves but the other thing we work on is new products and so most ideas get generated from a team of people or one person who has the idea and starts to incubate it and then once it gets to a certain revenue level where it can justify putting them on for it more they're the leader of the project they're running it they're really responsible for not only product development, but growth and, and everything. So let's say you had a, a I had an idea and I worked here, right? Mm-hmm. I build the thing. And then what happens next? Am I the early evangelist to see how many people I can get on it? Or yeah. do you have a team internally that sort of latches on and helps? We actually, initial growth? both. Okay. So we have a team that's called the growth team. 
they're just designers and developers, okay. but they have an interest and experience growing things. So they work with clients to do that on the products that we're building for clients. And they also work on our internal stuff. So before it has a team that gets to full time on it, the growth team, who is Dan Croak and Galen in San Francisco, they will start to help. That can be like any, you know, it could be anything. Uh, it could be making new home pages or running growth experiments or running ads, those kinds of things. So that things can happen outside of the time that people are just working on it. So how many of the, the projects that have come out of that have actually hit that level where you're actually putting people on it? So Upcase is the only one right now that has a team, a, a standing team of people. You know, sometimes the people rotate just like client projects, but a managing director or someone who leads it um, and a standing team of three people on it. Upcase is the only one like that. Formkeep and Hound are ones where what happens is we spend a significant amount of time on them, bigger than just Fridays, but it'll be based on in-between client work or when we think that there's something very important for the product to accomplish. And so the product manager will say, I'd really like to work on this. We say, okay, you know, you're upcoming for this rotation coming off this client work or this client work's about to end. So we're not going to book you for the next month after that. Those kinds of things. We work it out. And then eventually things get to the revenue standpoint or the investment, you know, standpoint where if we're, if we're looking at it and we, as a group say the trajectory of this is showing us that we'd be stupid not to put someone on it, then we definitely do that. Okay. So I'm not claiming that it's perfect. But so far, it's working pretty well. And it's, it's pretty new for us to be doing things in quite so structured a way where we, we have an internal document now that actually lays out pretty specific revenue levels that things could get to to justify the full-time team, those kinds of things. So how do you, if I worked here and I had a great idea and it mm -hmm. hits that revenue level, how do you reward the person who first concepted the idea? Is, do they get some sort of a a stake in it or is it just yeah when the time actually came for that to make sense they would okay. um and that's sort of it's baked into that document and that was a big part of why we wanted to make that document because we actually felt like that's been a big problem with our sort of ad hoc way in the past and it didn't need to be super complicated we actually took a little bit of inspiration from 37 signals because they said you know we looked at doing stock option plans we looked at doing all these things it's all too complicated. We're just going to say, when the time comes, here's what it's going to look like. Mm -hmm. And we didn't do exactly that, but we did sort of the same thing where we made a commitment that when that time comes, it will happen. And part of it is you can't always predict what's going to happen. Like either the thing becomes really successful and stays within ThoughtBot and we need to come up with a way for reward and equity and all that stuff within ThoughtBot, or it's going to spin out to its own thing and then it will be completely different so we wanted something that would be flexible, but at the same time, not as ad hoc as we were doing before, which is like, oh, don't worry about it. It'll be taken care of when it, when it yeah. needs to. That stresses people out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. even if it doesn't stress people out, it's just people want to know that if they work hard on something, that they're going to get some reward for it. The short-term reward is important too. So we do quarterly reviews here. And the main thing that we, and we give quarterly raises and the main thing we give raises on is not what you did for client work because we expect all that to go really well. 
uh, what we do is what did you do on the product you're working on or the open source you're working on? Or, like, what did you do that is more than just the client work? So and we try to reward people as aggressively financially on a quarterly basis as well. And then bonuses and, and all that stuff. Very cool. So is One Mighty Roar is still a parent company for so it's Robin? A, it's a parent company. And um, so when we when we moved the team over, one of the, the big questions was like, okay, so like we're moving this team over because Robin was successful enough to say, hey, everyone should work on this, right? Mm-hmm. And so the way that we thought about it was like, okay, so how do we acknowledge that like the team we're moving over? It's not like we hired them on day one and they're like right. completely new. So what we did was we accelerated their vesting schedules Oh, they already had stock in One Mighty Roar? or So with the agency side of things, which mm-hmm. for all intents and purposes we are, stock is not really the best way to, right, exactly. to do that. And, you know, I don't, I'm don't. i preaching to the choir here. Right. I mean, there's the way that you guys do it is quite successful. What we did was very similar. But when you move over to something where the expectation is now there's equity involved, and I don't know what that means really, mm-hmm. but it's something that comes up when I Google it, right? So what we did was for everyone that uh, moved over to Robin with us, we gave them mm-hmm. stock grants in Robin, mm-hmm. which are different than options mm-hmm. and better for tax reasons that we okay. don't have to go in right yeah. now, <laughs> uh, the sexy side of, of investment, right? And we actually vested them based on how many their start date at One Mighty Roar, not Robin. That seems great. That seems so, really fair. Um, and obviously that doesn't preclude them from future options, but right. you know when something works so well that you got to make a new thing out of it. Mm-hmm. That was like a hard one for us. It took us a while to realize that that was the right answer. Cool. So I want to take a quick diversion. And you mentioned this, that you started One Mighty Roar with your twin brother, Mm -hmm. and you're doing Robin with your twin brother. You obviously have a close working relationship with them. How has it been running a business with family? So they say don't do it. Right. (laughs) Um, It's been surprisingly successful. So Sam, my twin brother, uh, and I have spent really all the time together. And there's some trade-offs for that, right? So we're able to have very, I guess to an outside party, would be passionate discussions, really fast, really furious, and just be done with it in a way that I wouldn't be able to talk to anyone else because it would just be very abrasive. Now, do you guys have like a weird twin bond? Twin speak, yeah. Yeah. Uh, No, like so when, you know, he's in pain or he needs help. I can sense it. Yeah. Right. Uh, that welcome to the questions that I've been asked on every single date <laughs> in middle school and high school. Right. Psychic too. Uh, look, it's not without its challenges, but I think that you're able to apply a level of trust that you might not to say someone that you didn't grow up with, uh, because you know what their motivations are generally, and you know how their thought process mm-hmm. works. So in 2013, you won the Boston Globes 25 under 25 most innovative Bostonites list. You you, you went on that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's on your LinkedIn profile. Yeah. Did your brother get that too? Funny story about that. So I got it first, and I contacted them, and then he got it after. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, yes, he was on it too. And then they photographed us together, which was, they were just giddy about that, right? Anytime you can get symmetry in a photograph. Did you guys go to different colleges? No. Uh, and that was a happy accident. Mm-hmm. We went to Hartford, which I have to enunciate here in Boston. Otherwise, I accidentally get an Ivy League. He went for marketing. I went for web development, which at the time was sort of not quite computer science, but also not quite, you know, let's make a poster and put it online. Very new kind of major. And 
we built this thing kind of out of our, our dorm rooms and it just worked. So why quit when you're ahead? Yeah. You've obviously been working with him for a long time then. <laughs> yeah. Similarly for me, you know, I started ThoughtBot shortly after graduating from school with someone that I went to school with. Mm -hmm. And so we've worked together now for 14 years, uh, longer than I've been married. Um, so it's someone I've known for a long time and, you know, it's had its ups and downs, but it's really great when you have that long-term relationship with someone. I can't imagine having done it with someone I knew in my entire life though. Well, I mean, you probably have this with your, your partner. And, um, I think that the, the cornerstone of like any good business relationship is, you know, that you could have like a really heated fight or any relationship really, and know that they aren't thinking about leaving. Mm -hmm. even if you definitely do not see eye to eye and you didn't resolve it, right? So there is a certain stability in knowing that with family as, as well as someone that you've worked with, I'd imagine, with 14 years. Like, you guys probably argue. You're not 100% mm -hmm. in line all the time. Right. right. And, you know, I, I don't know if you two have different mindsets, but when we have an argument, it normally indicates that there's something worth thinking about more. Right. Um, now, do you guys have equal stake in the company? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it truly I, is a, a partnership in, in sort of the decision-making. So it's worth noting, so he's the CEO mm -hmm. and you're the CPO. Yes. So does he handle most of the business stuff? So the way that we've learned to phrase it is, uh, so very early on in the One Mighty Roar days, we added a third partner on, our, who's now our CTO. Mm -hmm. So he's been there He's a founding member for all intents and purposes. So the way that we like to describe it is Brian, our CTO, is how we build stuff. I'm a CPO, what we build. And then Sam is who we are mm -hmm. or why we are doing this to begin with. And the natural extension of that is kind of going out and selling, and, and he handles that as well as investor relations now, which is a major commitment of time. I was surprised to learn that as well. Whereas I'm more kind of internal facing on the average day and yeah. customer facing. Do you guys ever swap places? I have to ask. Oh, and, like and not tell anyone? Yeah. Like, oh, can you do this investor meeting for me today? I, I really need to. So the weirdest thing is when we go to like networking events sometimes and it's yeah. just one of us, I'll have people come up and start like conversations from cold, like a cold start with me. I guess that Sam had started right. weeks ago. Right. And you know, halfway down, I'd be like, oh, this is very interesting. You know, I got to be honest. I think I think that you met my twin brother. And they go, oh, I had no idea. They're like, no, let's continue talking. So it's it's a great sort of uh, icebreaker, too. But, yeah, we, we've accidentally been trapped in conversations where it was beneficial for us to not admit to being the wrong person. Right. Uh, because that would have just thrown the other person in a funk. So it's like, yeah, definitely nice to see you again. So where does the name Robin come from? Sure. So uh, we like to think of it as twofold. One, kind of the ultimate sidekick for a, a building or... I was hoping place. it was a Batman reference. It, well, certainly. I mean, birds are done to death, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, and then the other one, the more sentimental one, is it's actually our mother's name. Oh. Which uh, when, she, uh, when she found that out, she asked, so wait, it can tell you where what everyone's doing? And I said, not quite. She goes, I don't know how to feel about that. But yeah. uh, and I think she still doesn't, but we'd like to think that, you know, we'll make it up for her in time. <laughs> That's really nice. Now your day-to-day, -day, you're working on Robin, and, and it's very different than consulting was. But 
was there a time was there a day was there a moment where you guys decided that you need to stop doing one mighty roar and and switch to robin that that stands out in your mind yeah so everyone's had that one client project that like for whatever reason goes on way too long Mm -hmm. uh and like things don't go well and it's hard to pinpoint as to like why they didn't go well but someone needs to clean it up and it's all that and um we realized that we had two or three big client projects that we were working on with our whole team and their time was evenly spread and then we had this kind of thing that would become robin being worked on in the background what we realized was that people were actually basically going home and working on that mm-hmm. as sort of decompressing time and so they started viewing work as really work and that is like the passion project right and anytime you have that you kind of do a second look as to like are we running the sort of company that the people we have hired signed up for or that operate best in Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we realized that it, the answer was a resounding no. And um, more importantly, we had a team that really wanted to work on things that didn't expire. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was an interesting realization because when you do kind of client stuff, especially in the more marketing space, you find a lot of projects where the specs sound something like, oh, we have a big product launch or seasonal kind of like winter clothing line, right? Um we never did one of those, but, you know, we'll, we'll save kind of the identity of certain clients, right? And you build this great thing, and it has all this fantastic architecture, and it's a little bit of a science project because you get to build that one widget that you've always wanted to. And Then it ends, and then winter ends, and the campaign ends, and then the site goes away. And right. so you see your work ebb and flow, and actually if people ask you, what did you build recently? You can't show them 100% of the time. Right. And that takes it toll on people after a while so walk me through the decision making process and then and then how you guys sort of rolled it out and so was it you and your brother sort of saying let's talk so uh we realized that we could either do 20 percent of our time working on this thing and building it up and it would take about like a year let's Mm -hmm. say to get to the point where we could put it in front of anyone because uh, there's a lot of like legwork and plumbing to get even to the MVP. Or we could uh, rip the Band-Aid and then do 80% that and 20% tapering off client work and just get it done inside of six months mm-hmm. or less and do it right. And when we realized that, we also looked at kind of like the projects that we had as opportunities, and we realized that none of them really excited us enough to say, let's do that instead. And we had this one, um, now a customer of Robin, opportunity to come across our door where it was basically, they were asking for a smart office. And it was the perfect project for us to bridge that gap because mm-hmm. we were able to build a lot of the core technologies that Robin now uses against a client project while we went out and raised funding. Yeah. Did you go into that deal with that client maintaining ownership over it? Yes. So um, interesting thing that we, we learned pretty early on is that uh, the, the higher up you go in these kind of larger organizations, the more interested they are in like, I don't have to buy new servers, right? So they definitely want to kind of mm-hmm. uh, not necess- access is different than ownership nowadays, right? right. So it was uh, in terms of the deal. Yeah. At that point, did you sort of pull the team together and have a big company-wide meeting and 
announce what you were doing and balloons dropped from the ceiling and <laughs> yeah no we're we were a bootstrap company then you know. <laughs> that's true <laughs> so uh more of like uh drawings of balloons and all of that those are expensive right when you're in boston there's a lot of kind of uh you kind of look at the west coast sometimes and you're like oh well like all of them are raising money to make like snapchat for dogs or whatever and you know it's easy to sort of become cynical about raising money because you you rarely see people doing it that are making things that you genuinely like care about so i think that for a long time part of the one mighty roar identity was we are bootstrapped and profitable and to go from that mindset to suddenly say i think that we have an idea here that's bigger than what we're able to accomplish in a meaningful time frame on our own that was a hard one to admit but I think everyone on the team sort of breathed a sigh of relief when we finally said it because mm-hmm. it was the elephant in the room for a mm-hmm. while, right? Investors do have a, a role in a lot of these product developments because otherwise you're, you're either late to market or you don't have time to build it at all. So there was a sense of relief from the team once I it became say, clear that's what you're doing? Yeah, yeah. I would say that by and large people viewed it as like, a, I finally get to work on the thing that I care about. Yeah and not just what the next client in the door cares about. Tell me about the pricing structure for Robin. Sure. So uh, one of the biggest things that you learn when you go from client things where you're charging tens of thousands of dollars to deliver, you know, a finite scope to something where it's more of a SaaS platform is how you actually structure these things Mm -hmm. that make sense for people. And um, we went through a few iterations. First, we sort of, targeted more of like the enterprise level, so many hundreds of dollars a month. And then we realized that the easiest way for us to book to do it is to say $10 a month per room, and that's it. Mm-hmm. So for every room that you're running, Robin, $10 a month. And that, that's that been well-received by the people who have used it so far. Yeah, it seems really accessible. And even if you had a lot of rooms, then you probably have a big business. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So we've we've had some people come across our uh, doorstep where they're. This is not hyperbole, and I was stunned to hear this as well. We have 400 conference rooms, and we're thinking about building 200 more because those 400 are always in use. And we go, are they? And they go, well, they're booked, and that's as good as in use. And we go, ah, there's the problem. Right. So that's interesting because yeah. not only is the value proposition of Robin to make something that really works better. But in theory, you could save them from building a new another 200 conference rooms. Yeah. So, like, people make real estate decisions on really funny things, as we found out. And it's, like, the unsexy side effect of, I guess, what we're doing. But it, it was, like, really interesting to discover. So, for example, if you are a large company where you can't see everyone from your desk, uh, most of these larger companies, what they'll actually do is something called bed checks. And basically what a bed check is, is they'll hand an intern a clipboard, or if you're a high-tech company, maybe an iPad, and they'll go, hey, walk the grounds, and every time you see someone in a conference room, write down the name of the conference room and how many people are in it. And they maybe do this like once every couple of weeks, and at the end of the month, they look at the spreadsheet and they go, oh, these conference rooms are always in use. Let's make more. And that's like such an insane way to manage real estate, but this is the best they can do. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like making website changes simply by watching who uses it at the local library. Right. It's not enough data. And um, we, we solve for that as, a, as part of what we do. So what's the sort of craziest stretch idea that you have for what a Robin-powered 
office might do. And this could be something that you guys have planned, or it could just be something sure. that you think is a really so, cool idea. There's a lot we could do. So as a broad thing, there, there are some very <laughs> specific things I'm excited about that I don't want to completely spill the beans on. But let's say hypothetically, what if you started to view your office like something that you could install an app onto specific rooms, mm-hmm. right? And so, hey, maybe your conference room is running a calendar app so that it auto books and maybe some app where if you're in it, through lunch, it automatically orders you all food, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. You could do seamless integrations. We've had one company, what they're trying to build is basically if their entire development team shows up before 9 a.m., they automatically get donuts delivered to the office. <laughs> uh, but what we think about is uh, what if you could treat a room like something that you could walk into, log into, change stuff like Maybe you put a presentation up on screen automatically and your Mm -hmm. phone becomes a remote control for the room. And let's say you go to toggle to slide three on your presentation. And then someone comes in and goes, I need this room. And you go, okay. And you press a button on your phone, saves the state of the room. You walk into another room and unpack it and everything is exactly the same in that new room. Right. So we start to think about it like rooms as devices. And that's kind of an interesting thought experiment without giving too much away. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed, but when you arrived, the bathroom, our bathrooms have uh, an in-use light. It was occupied. On them. <laughs> yeah. So we have two, a bank of two bathrooms that are around a corner. You can't see them. You can't see when the doors are closed. Mm-hmm. So we don't use beacons or anything like that. It's just when the, there's a door sensor. And uh, Tony built it using an Arduino box. So there's, yeah. And then we have we have a blog post about it. If people are interested in that, they can. But we ended up designing a custom Arduino board that would have longer battery life as well for that project. So these kinds of things get us super excited. And uh, we're sitting in the new floor that we just took over on our building where we have recording studio. One of the reasons why we did it was because we needed more conference room and phone booth space. So we have three phone booths here, which we haven't had in the office before. And so there's a lot of opportunities we're looking at to know whether things are in use. I think Robin is going to be a big, big use for us. Happy to do that. So the other kind of interesting side effect that we found is um, if I asked you who's upstairs right now, right, Mm -hmm. how would you even begin to solve that problem? Like, turns out that a lot of people get interrupted a lot just with like, hey, what are you up to? When's the next time I can grab you for five minutes? Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about that is it requires your response in order for me to get data that I can act on, right? Whereas if I can say, oh, Chad's sitting you know, down here in the recording studio, that must mean that he's doing other things and I can't bother him until right. it's tough. So there's a lot to be said about like just knowing what the hell's happening around you without actually having to like ask someone. Yeah. Very cool. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to trying out Robin here. Maybe we'll have you back on once it's up and running. <laughs> yeah. You can help us debug it on, on the show. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, riveting. All right. Show notes for this episode can be found at giantrobots.fm slash 126. This episode was recorded and produced by Tom Obarski. See you next time.